Hello, and welcome to another episode of All for Nature. I'm your host, Michelle Bonebreak, and I'm an outdoor educator here at Shaw Nature Reserve. It's officially fall here at the Nature Reserve. The leaves are already starting to turn and the light is golden. It's just glorious. And when I think about fall, one of the things I think about is school and all the faces I get to meet at the Nature Reserve when school groups come to visit. So this month, it only seems fitting to talk about education at the Nature Reserve. But that's a huge topic because our education team does a lot and there just isn't enough time to talk about everything we do in one episode. So for today, we're going to focus in on one piece of the education team here at the Nature Reserve, a piece I feel so lucky to be part of because I absolutely love what I do. And be sure to stick around after today's interview because we will introduce you to an amazing local artists collective that comes out to the nature reserve every year and is doing some great work that very much aligns with what we are talking about today. We'll be featuring a sampling of that work. So stay tuned for that as well as an update on everything happening here at the nature reserve this fall. But for now, let's get back to talking education. Along the way, we'll discuss some of the obstacles people face in connecting with the natural world and even how we at the Nature Reserve are working to better understand and help overcome those barriers. To that end, I'd like to welcome Jesse Dawkins to the program. Jesse is the coordinator of school programs for grades 4 through 12 here at the Nature Reserve, and she's also my boss. Thanks for joining me, Jesse. Thanks, Michelle. I'm excited to be here. Tell us a little about your background. How did you become interested in the work we do, and how did you find your way here? Yeah, thanks for that question. So I'm going to approach that from a couple of different angles, and I'll start with kind of the personal side of things. So I grew up in St. Louis, kind of in suburbia, and I remember enjoying backyard nature as a kid. But like as a family, we didn't spend a ton of time outside. Like we didn't camp or hike or anything like that. So like so many people, I played outside when I was a kid, but then I kind of grew out of and and grew away from nature until I was in college. And when I was in college, two things happened that shifted my feelings about being outside and connecting with nature. And the first was that I adopted this like incredibly high energy dog. Her name was Alice. And so Alice and I had this like tiny apartment in St. Louis City. And basically, I could not take Alice on enough walks to wear her out. And so, you know, kind of like last resort, we decided to try this thing called hiking. And so we started hiking. And it it turns out that hiking still didn't wear Alice out. But it did have the silver lining of making me realize like how much I enjoyed being in those types of spaces, like out on the trail, I liked how it made me feel how it could kind of like clear my head. So that was one thing. The second thing in junior year of college, kind of on a whim, I enrolled in an entomology course. So Mm. entomology is the study of insects. And this class had a field component where we we went to different parks and natural areas, like looking for bugs. And so all of a sudden, I'm in these spaces that I just realized I really enjoy being in. And I'm discovering like all these wild and crazy insects that I never knew existed. And so like, for me, this was like magic. It was like, I had been passing mm. by all these really cool things my entire mm-hmm. life. Um, but now all of a sudden, like I'm suddenly privy to them, right? Um, also for this class, I had a wonderful professor, shout out to Dr. James Hunt, and Dr. Hunt could name, but like more importantly, he could tell the story of not just every insect, but also every plant, 
and every bird. I remember this one time we were sitting and eating lunch and Dr. Hunt was able to tell us what birds were in the trees above our heads just by the sounds they were making. And so like, again, this was like magic to me. And I just like, I couldn't get enough. Um, And this is a feeling that just like never quite went away. This feeling of if I slow down and look enough, I'm going to discover something that's just wonderful outside. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like personally how I fell in love with the natural world. Now, professionally, it took me a while to get into this career field and into the nature reserve. So I was the first person in my family to go to college. And when I graduated, I graduated with a ton of debt. So like, as I was graduating, I knew I wanted to go into environmental ed, but I also knew I needed to make money more. So I ended up working at a community college for a long time. And then about six years ago, I decided to take the plunge and try a career pivot. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of approached that by volunteering and then working at various conservation organizations around town for a couple of years. And then what is now my current position opened up, I just kind of jumped on it. And I've been here ever since. So actually, this week is my four year anniversary with the Nature Reserve. Oh, happy anniversary. I am so glad you're here. And I think the Nature Reserve as a whole is better for it. Okay, so let's set the stage for our listeners. I think Um, of our education team at the Nature Reserve as having two parts, public programs and school programs. And sometimes those two pieces overlap. But generally speaking, you and I work with school groups in grades four through 12, as well as community groups. So for this episode, we'll focus on that piece of the education team's work, the work we do at the Nature Reserve. So let's start with where that work takes place, because honestly, it's a fairly unique and beautiful campus. We work within the Nature Reserve at the Dana Brown Overnight Center, which we call the DBOC. So listeners, when you hear us say DBOC during this episode, just know we mean the Dana Brown Overnight Center. Jesse, I would love it if you could tell our listeners more about the DBOC and how it is used. Sure. So the DBOC campus is kind of tucked away on the east end of the nature reserve. And the campus consists of seven buildings. And most of these buildings are historic structures. And what I mean by that is like they are old. So the (laughs) oldest building that we have on campus is 203 years old this year. And these buildings, they weren't originally located at the nature reserve. Instead, like if you can imagine those old barns and cabins that you see when you're driving down the highway, maybe out in the country, That's basically what these buildings were. So back in the early 2000s, when the idea for the DBOC campus took hold, these old structures were identified and dismantled and brought to the Nature Reserve, where they were reassembled piece by piece and beam by beam. So the result is that this makes for a really charming campus, like it looks very old and Mm -hmm. rustic on the outside, but it's got all the modern amenities on the inside, things like electricity and heat and air conditioning and flushing toilets, all the stuff we have at home, right? Um, So of these seven buildings, four of them are overnight cabins, and each cabin can sleep between 14 and 19 people for a total of about 60 people at any one time. And layout wise, each cabin has a living room, it has a bunk area with bunk beds, a separate chaperone sleeping area and a bathroom. The campus also has a shower house and two meeting buildings. And each of these meeting buildings has a large dining hall or gathering space and a full kitchen. So that's kind of what the campus looks like. Now moving on to like what we do on the DBOC campus, the DBOC is used in a variety of ways. So we host special events here, like our annual art show coming up in November. We also offer private rentals, but viewed from an education perspective, like through our lenses, right? 
The DBOC <laughs> is the Nature Reserve's environmental learning campus, and we use this campus to host day and overnight experiences for schools, for teachers, and for youth and community groups. Awesome. Thank you for that overview. And listeners, we are actually recording this episode in one of those historic cabins Jesse mentioned. Uh, so if you notice anything about the audio, uh, this is our studio. Okay, Jesse, as you pointed out, this campus is used in a number of ways, but let's focus on school programs specifically. Tell us a little more about school programs in general at the Nature Reserve, and then, but maybe we can kind of move more narrowly to what we offer at the DBOC in particular. Yeah, so the Nature Reserve offers school programs for all learners from pre-K through 12th grade, and pre-kindergarten through third grade programs are actually hosted on the other side of the Nature Reserve, and those are coordinated by Karen Bryan, who is the other school programs coordinator here at the Nature Reserve. And Michelle, I know you mentioned you were going to put her contact information in the show notes. Great. So at the DBOC, we host programs for grades 4 through 12 and for youth and community groups. So these groups come out and they visit us either for the day or for an overnight experience and oftentimes when they're on site, they also participate in classes with us. So we offer a wide variety of nature-focused classes, and these classes are grouped into kind of like three categories or buckets, and I can run through these, and I'll start with our ecology classes because they make up the majority of our class offerings. So some of our ecology classes are high-level intros to our region's major ecosystems. So for example, one of our most popular classes is our ecosystem sampler, and in this class, we explore and compare the prairie the forest, and the wetland. And along the way, we're investigating the living and the non-living parts of these ecosystems. We're trying to figure out how everything's connected and just basically trying to like suss out what makes each of these ecosystems unique. So that's an example of one of our ecosystem exploration classes. We have other ecology classes that are deeper dives into either specific ecosystems or specific organisms who are part of those ecosystems. And an example of this is our invertebrate ecology class, which was designed by another one of our awesome outdoor educators, Beth Adams. Mm -hmm. And in this class, we search for bugs and the other invertebrates who live in the habitats around the DBOC. And also in this class, which I think is a really unique component, is we spend some time searching for the evidence that these invertebrates leave behind. So things like webs and tunnels and nests. So just Mm -hmm. like scientists, we're using evidence to make possible explanations for like what we're finding and who's been there and what's been going on. So that's an overview of our ecology classes, but we also have navigation courses. So we have GPS and compass classes. And in both of these classes, we learn how to use these tools and then we use them to navigate through the nature reserve while participating in scavenger hunts. And then finally, for that third category, we have an art and nature class. And this is an opportunity to experience the natural world through a different lens. So in this class, we explore the idea that art can be made with natural objects and then learners use natural materials to create art that expresses themselves and their relationships with the natural world. Great overview. Thanks. So one of the things I think is really fun and exciting about our programming is that our lesson plans are a little different from traditional education. And what I mean by traditional education in this sense is the model of sitting in place, maybe in a classroom, and receiving information from an instructor who is viewed as an authoritative expert on a subject. And many of us, including I'm sure our listeners, have grown up learning under that model. But But our programs at the DBOC look quite different from that traditional model and for good reason. In fact, our curriculum has gone through a recent redesign. Explain that for us, if you would. How did that come about? 
Sure. So let me start by saying that the Nature Reserve has always offered high quality school programs and they've always been well attended. Now that said, beginning about four years ago, we made a very intentional shift to review our programming through a lens of equity. And it was during that review that we realized it was time to re-envision and reimagine our curriculum. And so we kind of embarked on this redesign process with the goal of developing outdoor learning experiences that were three things. So we wanted them to be nature-focused, learner-driven, and we wanted equity to be centered in this new curriculum. So we had this kind of like big and lofty goal, right? And we knew we couldn't go at this alone. So we had help from a great resource called The Beatles. And usually when I say this, someone's like, oh yeah, I love The Beatles. They make <laughs> great music. Um, different Beatles. So like not the band. And also not the bug. Instead, this Beatles, um, they are a group of environmental educators out of UC Berkeley, and they basically work to infuse environmental ed with research-backed approaches about how people learn best. And so it turns out that the majority of people don't learn best by, Michelle, what you call sit and gets, right? Mm -hmm. Where we're just kind of <laughs> passively sitting and receiving facts from an instructor. Mm -hmm. Instead, when it comes to outdoor science, as we learn from the Beatles, people learn best when they're able to do a few different things. And let me share what some of those things are. These are also the principles that formed the foundation of our curriculum redesign. So first, people learn outdoor science best when they're able to directly interact with nature. And so we knew we needed to create experiences where people are directly exploring aspects of the natural world. And this is like versus being just told about it or reading about it or using models to demonstrate it. Another principle we learned from the Beatles is that people learn science best when they think like scientists. And so this is that idea that the best way to teach science is by practicing how scientists actually do science. Another principle is providing opportunities for learners to engage in productive discussions. So learning is often a social act, especially when learners are surrounded by other learners. So we knew in our new curriculum that we needed to devote time to building a culture of productive discussion. And then the Beatles' final design principle is participating in culturally relevant learning environments. And so participants deserve to bring their full selves to any learning experience. And as instructors, we can include and affirm learners' lived experiences by making space for them and by being curious about them. So this is kind of like a high-level summary of the Beatles' approach to teaching. For our curriculum redesign, we adopted these principles and we used them to update our existing lesson plans and develop new lesson plans. Okay, so tell us what that looks like in the field. How is this way of learning different in practice from the traditional education or classroom model I mentioned earlier? Sure. So the result of this redesign is that we now have a curriculum that's very much inquiry-driven and skill-based. So instead of just sharing facts, like, for example, hey, students, this is a redbud tree and it has heart-shaped <laughs> leaves. Instead of that, our focus is on practicing the skills that scientists use to explore and make sense out of their discoveries. So these are skills and practices like making close and careful observations. So, for example, instead of telling students, maybe we ask a broad question, like, what do you notice? And we let students discover those heart-shaped leaves or the other characteristics that make a red bud a red bud. Uh, another skill is asking a ton of questions. 
So we approach questioning like a muscle. The more questions you ask, the better and stronger they get. So with our red bud example, maybe some learners share some I wonder questions about the tree. Like why does this tree have heart-shaped leaves? Does the shape of the leaves help the tree in some way? Um, and then another practice that we emphasize a lot is connecting with prior experiences. And this is offering participants opportunities to connect what we're exploring with aspects of their own personal lives. So for example, maybe this tree reminds somebody of a tree that was in their grandma's backyard, or maybe a tree that they learned about in a book or on a TV show. And this is where scaffolding is being constructed to connect this new shared experience that we're having with the lived experience of each and every learner. Mm. So these are abstract ideas, right? But when we apply these ideas to our programming, the result are programs where the learners are centered. So the learners are using their skills and their interests to drive what aspects of nature we discover and focus on. And, um, that actually brings us to what like on one side of the coin might be the most rewarding part of this type of teaching. But if we flip that coin over, it's also really challenging. So <laughs> as educators, like we're not the only ones in the driver's seat during these learning experiences. The learners are right there alongside us and, and they're kind of steering alongside us as well. <laughs> so we don't always know what we'll discover during our programs and explorations. And we don't always know what's going to be that one thing that gets the learners revved up and excited. And the ultimate result for us is it keeps us on our toes, it keeps us flexible, but best of all, it makes us co-explorers and co-learners with our program participants. So we get to be authentically excited and curious and learners can sense that. And I think learners benefit from that. Um, kind of wrapping up these ideas, one final thought about this type of curriculum is this style of inquiry-based education, it's inclusive. It's inclusive of all learners. And I think this is partly due to the fact that it levels out the playing field. Mm -hmm. So learners aren't just regurgitating facts. They're not depending on their individual prior knowledge about a topic. Instead, they're actively engaging in a shared experience of co-discovery and meaning-making, both with their peers and with us. So I recently heard this type of outdoor science teaching be described as, we teach the stuff you can't just Google. And I feel like that sums it up really nicely. Yes. I think so too. And you know, I've personally witnessed this style of education, this active and direct engagement making a difference. And I've learned so much myself by exploring the natural world with our learners using these techniques. And I think these methods boost confidence and even give learners a sense of ownership over their own learning, which is important. And as you mentioned, it really keeps us on our toes. So it's never boring. And that's part of the fun. Every time we go out in nature with our groups, there's something new to explore. We've seen really amazing things happen. And to be clear, I'm not only talking about the plants and animals and other organisms we explore, I'm talking about in and with our learners. So is there a favorite memory or story you would like to share that illustrates how effective this style of learning is? Or maybe there's a specific moment that really sparked wonder and awe with learners you were guiding. Ooh, I feel like that's hard to choose from, but my favorite moments tend to be when learners realize that those feelings of awe and wonder that you mentioned, that those feelings are accessible to them, that they don't need to travel to like the top of a mountain or an ocean beach to experience these feelings, that they can discover awe-inspiring things all around them wherever they are. And I feel like when learners realize this, it's like a switch flips and all of a sudden they're, they're ready to explore and they're excited to make sense of what they're discovering. Um, and so a story to illustrate this is I remember one student who, when he arrived, like 
he was just not a fan of the nature reserve, basically. <laughs> like, he didn't want to walk in the grass. He's a little bit worried about bugs. And he just basically was not happy to be here. Um, so we start our class, right? And we're, we are in the grass. And I share these exploration skills with the group. And we're moving through the prairie. And this student happens to ask about a seed pod that he sees that's kind of dangling from a plant. And I have been waiting for him to ask any question. So I think to myself, okay, this is it. Like, here's my end. And so we're investigating this object together. And I'm not telling him what it is. Instead, we're just trading observations about like the color and the texture and the size. And he's trying to figure out like what in the world this thing might be. And I can see that he's starting to get just like the tiniest bit interested. And then a couple of his buddies come over and they're a little bit interested too. So like now they're all asking questions about this object and they're coming up with ideas about what it might be. And so I ask them, I say, do you want to open this thing up? And like, they all get so excited because like now there's this element of surprise. And, um, so I didn't tell them this, but just to add some context to the story, inside this particular type of seed pod are the seeds of the plant, but oftentimes also these tiny black beetles called weevils. And so they're smaller than a grain of rice, and they've got these like long pointy snouts. And to be <laughs> honest, like they're kind of adorable, but people don't typically notice them right away because they're so small. But also when they're disturbed, they play dead. So they get really still and rigid, just like a, an opossum plays dead. So these students are picking through the contents of the seed pod and they're dumping the seeds and these like very still weevils onto my clipboard and after a couple of minutes the weevils start waking up and so like they're wiggling and they get up and they start walking around on my clipboard and I am 100% ready for this particular student to just freak out <laughs> but that's not what happened because by this time he is so into exploring the seed pod and figuring out this nature mystery that I don't know if he forgot to be scared or what <laughs> instead all of these learners are scrambling to get a closer look they're pulling out their hand lenses and they're saying things like what are they doing how did they get there what are they so it became this moment of unexpected awe followed by wonder. And we were able to use this moment as a jumping off point um, to discuss things like ecosystems and habitats and adaptations. But also this moment was this learner's jumping off point to becoming an explorer of the natural world. And so for the rest of this class, this student wanted to observe and dissect every single seed or anything that looked like a seed that we came across. So in the span of one hour, he went from not even wanting to be at the nature reserve to taking the reins of his own learning in an outdoor natural setting. And I just thought this was awesome. What a great example. And I, I love those little weevils. They are adorable. And I completely agree. It's so rewarding when these moments happen, because that's when we know we've really connected students with the natural world. And who knows, maybe even sparked a lifelong love for learning and for the outdoors. So speaking of learning, we talked a little about why we engaged in a curriculum redesign and how in our programming, we are implementing research-based techniques through the use of beetles and other resources. And as the example you just gave illustrates so well, we've personally seen great outcomes with the learners we take into nature. Research also tells us that simply spending time in nature has many other benefits. The American Psychological Association reports that time spent in nature improves our mental health and emotional well-being and can even sharpen our thinking. The University of Michigan released a study in 2021 that reports time spent in nature increases short-term memory and attention span. 
These are all ideas we try to support with our programs, but spending time in nature is not so easy for everyone. In that same 2021 University of Michigan study I just mentioned, 22% of study participants, which is about one in five, said they wanted to spend more time in nature, but they faced various barriers or roadblocks in doing so. One in five. Maybe you could explain for our listeners what that means. What are some barriers people face when it comes to spending time in and with nature? Sure. So when I think about this, I think there's an extremely wide range of barriers when it comes to connecting with the natural world. Like it could probably be its own podcast episode. But Mm -hmm. that said, I'll share what I consider to be three of the most significant barriers. So one of the biggest roadblocks to equitable access to nature is our nation's history. So the United States has a history of excluding certain communities, such as Black, Indigenous, and people of color Mm -hmm. from outdoor spaces like the Nature Reserve. So if we take that history and come to the present moment, this history has contributed to generations of people who have been denied their very basic and their very human right to connect with the natural world, as well as all the benefits that come along with that relationship. So that's one barrier. A very much related second barrier is financial. So we know from talking with teachers and schools and youth and community groups that cost is a major obstacle when it comes to planning field trips to the nature reserve. And this isn't just field trip fees, but it's also things like the cost of bus transportation to and from the nature reserve. And of course, these financial barriers are more prevalent. They're more burdensome for communities who've been historically marginalized and excluded. So finally, and this also has connections with the other two barriers, is the fact that some people just don't feel comfortable or safe in outdoor spaces like the nature reserve. There is this quote from Jose Gonzalez, who is an amazing environmental educator and the founder of Latino Outdoors, that I think expresses this idea better than I can. So Jose says, there doesn't need to be a bear in the woods for someone to be afraid of it. Mm. So it just kind of is this fear of the unknown. So whether it's bears or bugs or weather or reading a trail map for the first time, if some someone doesn't have much lived experience with these things, then of course, there's going to be some element of anxiety that comes alongside it. Oh, that's so true. So true. And I I think our listeners can probably think of a time in their own lives when they felt that way themselves, whether about the natural world or something else. Um, This discussion we're having, I think it's important to note that we're having these same discussions in environmental education at the national level. Uh, More and more in our field, we're talking about what barriers people are facing and why and what we can do to help remove those obstacles and invite more people, especially people who are part of historically excluded or marginalized groups to connect with the natural world. Here at the Nature Reserve, we recognize this is something we need to tackle, and we're taking steps toward that goal. Maybe you could summarize a few of the efforts we're making here at the Nature Reserve to increase access and help more people connect with nature. Sure. Let me start with the financial side of things. Mm -hmm. So at the Nature Reserve, we're fortunate to be able to offer a grant-funded scholarship to Title I schools. So these are schools in which 40% or more of the students qualify for free or reduced lunches. So for these Title I and Title I eligible schools, this scholarship 100% covers the cost of bus transportation to and from the Nature Reserve, all field trip fees, and overnight lodging. So 
That scholarship helps to remove some of the barriers when it comes to equitable access to nature, but we know that that alone is not enough. So we also make intentional and frequent efforts to reach out to, to build relationships with, and to welcome new and diverse audiences to the nature reserve. And one thing that helps immensely with these efforts are our partnerships with community organizations whose values intersect with our own. So for example, this summer, we partnered with three local organizations These were River City Outdoors, the St. Louis Science Center, and Boys and Girls Club. And just these three partnerships helped us welcome to the Nature Reserve over 160 young people, many of these people from multiple visits to the Nature Reserve over the course of the summer, and all of them from communities who've been historically excluded from outdoor spaces like the Nature Reserve. Yes, and those organizations are so amazing and important to us and to our and their communities. They're doing fantastic work, and I've really enjoyed meeting these current and future community group leaders. And I say future because the young people you mentioned who came out as part of those organizations are so amazing. I have a feeling we'll be hearing more from them as they become community leaders themselves. Okay, what else? Yeah, so kind of moving on to the idea of feeling safe and comfortable while at the nature reserve, we approach this from a couple of different angles. And the first starts before learners even arrive at the nature reserve when we share field trip previews with them. So we have an interactive field trip preview that's built in Google Earth, and it's customized for groups. And so when a student or a youth group member opens it, they start from their individual school or organization, and they virtually travel to the nature reserve. And now once they're at the nature reserve, they're able to virtually travel across the nature reserve while visiting these interactive stations. And at each station, they can explore natural areas, they can meet us, and they can get familiar and acquainted with the DBOC campus. So this preview happens before the trip, but once groups arrive, we want to continue fostering that sense of comfort and safety. We try to do this with an idea borrowed from the faith community called radical hospitality. And radical hospitality is this idea of going beyond just being friendly and instead intentionally thinking through how to be authentically inclusive to all guests. And I say guests because we consider our program participants to be guests, and we try to share the same level of hospitality with them that we would if we were inviting guests into our own home. So for example, we have what we call a creature comfort area where we stock items like bug spray and water bottles and jackets and sleeping bags and other things people maybe they forgot or they didn't have to bring or they didn't know they needed. We try to keep most of these items in a communal area so whoever needs them has easy access. They don't have to ask permission or ask us to use or to borrow. So taken all together, we hope that these types of physical comforts help to build psychological comfort and vice versa when it comes to connecting with nature. Agreed. Okay, so we've talked about barriers to accessing the natural world. And I think a lot of people, when they think about what nature is and where it can be found, they first think about places like public parks and public lands, and we hope Shaw Nature Reserve. And to be clear, we do want people to come and see us. Yes, definitely. But we also have maybe a more nuanced point of view about what nature is and where nature is found. So maybe you can explain our perspective for our listeners. Sure. And I think this is related to justice and equity as well. I think one idea that could go a long way in increasing equitable access to nature is redefining and expanding the definition of what nature actually is. So yes, nature includes scenic vistas and panoramic views. Those are great. But nature isn't only places you have to travel far distances to reach or pay high prices to access. That's a false narrative. And we work to dispel that in basically everything we do. Because the truth of the matter is that nature 
nature is way more accessible than that because nature surrounds us all the time. In fact, we humans are literally a part of nature. (laughs) Uh And kind of following that thread, one of the reasons we focus our programming on developing inquiry skills is because these skills are like a mental curiosity toolkit. And so anyone can use this toolkit to investigate anything they find interesting wherever they are, whether they're with us at the nature reserve or in a schoolyard or walking down a sidewalk. Absolutely. Those skills are so flexible and can be used anywhere and anytime to explore just about anything. Okay, Jesse, we have what I might call a guiding philosophy here at the Nature Reserve about diversity and the importance of diversity. Listeners who heard last month's podcast episode with Mike know we discussed the importance of biodiversity in the plant and animal world. I'd love to hear how you would relate that idea of biodiversity in the natural world to the principles of equity, diversity, and inclusion that we're talking about here today. Sure. So we know that in ecology, the more diverse an ecosystem is, the stronger and more resilient it is, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, my office window looks out on a tall grass prairie. And in that prairie, there are maybe 80 different species or types of plants. And this prairie is healthier and stronger because of that diversity. Another thing about these prairie plants is that they grow really closely together to the point that they are like literally holding each other up and they're literally supporting each other. In fact, if you take some of these plants out of the prairie and you try to grow them alone, they flop over. Like Mm -hmm. they can't hold themselves up alone. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here. And it's one that we can apply to our human communities and our social landscapes. This idea that our diversity is an asset, that the differences and the things that make us unique are strengths that can help make our human communities stronger and more resilient, just like the biodiversity found in a healthy prairie ecosystem. That's a great analogy. And I could not agree more. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground today, and I'm betting our listeners are wondering, how might schools and community groups who are interested in having these experiences we've talked about today find out more? Yeah, so anyone who's interested can always visit our website at shawnature.org to learn more about the DBOC, school and youth and community group programs. And of course, everyone is also welcome to email me. Michelle, I know you're going to include my email address in the show notes. Absolutely. We will drop links to all the resources we've mentioned today in the show notes for you, our listeners. Okay, Jesse, as we mentioned, research tells us spending time in nature is important for our mental health our emotional well-being, and even our ability to think. And I know because we talk about it, that you and I and Beth have experienced this ourselves, both as individuals out there exploring on our own and with our learners in the field. So tell us, what is your favorite place to be in nature at Shaw Nature Reserve and why? Well, my first answer is wherever I happen to be at the moment. Um, To be honest, I don't have a specific favorite spot or trail, but one of my favorite things about the nature reserve is that I can visit so many different habitats in just one walk. So in one afternoon, I can explore prairies and wetlands and glades and forests, even the Merrimack River. Um, Honestly, I don't know of any other place around here where you can do that. It's pretty special. It really is. Jesse, I have so enjoyed chatting with you today and sharing more about our work at the Dana Brown Overnight Center. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll come back again soon. Thanks, Michelle. It's been great fun. Okay, listeners. 
Don't forget to check the show notes for links to all the organizations and resources that we mentioned here today, as well as contact information for Karen and Jesse, our school program coordinators here at the Nature Reserve. It's almost time to give you an update on what's going on at the Nature Reserve this fall. But first, at the top of the episode, I mentioned a local artists collective working to uplift the voice of urban youth while addressing some of the very ideas we've discussed here today. This group, the St. Louis Story Stitchers, comes out to the Dana Brown Overnight Center each year to immerse themselves in nature and create beautiful work. And the Story Stitchers have graciously agreed to allow me to share a little taste of that work with you today. So without further delay, it is my pleasure to introduce you to the St. Louis Story Stitchers as they take us to the prairie. Warm season grass species, territory so precious. Let's take a ride, hop in the car, take a drive to the prairie where the grass always green on the All right. So good. Now, listeners, just like with all the other resources we mentioned, you can find more about the Story Stitchers in the show notes. And I'll also drop a link to a recent feature appearing on St. Louis on the Air, which features the Story Stitchers and our very own Jessica Kester. And listeners, if you heard our very first episode, you're already acquainted with Jessica. So be sure to check that out. It's really great. And now, to wrap up our episode, here's what you need to know about upcoming events and classes right here at Shaw Nature Reserve. And again, if you're listening from the future, these events are all in 2023. First, the Leaves and Seeds Fall Fun Run 5K that was scheduled for October 21st has been canceled. But don't let that stop you from coming out and immersing yourselves, as the Story Stitchers did, in the beauty that is autumn splendor here at the Nature Reserve. Meanwhile, keep an eye on our website and social media for more updates on future run events. In November, yes, folks, it's our annual art show. This is your chance to come see those historic buildings of the Dana Brown Overnight Center in person while viewing art displays from our local artists. The art show takes place November 4th and 5th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day. And please note, we will have food and drinks available for purchase on site from our friends at Central State Sandwiches and Point Labity Brewery. December. The Whitmire Wonderlights will be taking place December 7th, 8th, and 9th. Yes, that is an entire extra day, and we are expanding capacity. If you are not familiar with this event, it is a rare opportunity for a self-guided luminary walk on a wintry evening. We'll have space for warming and warm drinks available for purchase, so come on out. Tickets are on sale right now online, and this event is popular, so be sure to register soon. And last but not least, we have a number of amazing public programs coming up soon that still have some space available. I hear there are some great fall foliage hikes, watercolor classes, photography workshops, and even a partial solar eclipse viewing that still have some availability. Visit shawnature.org and click through the menus to register or check out the links in our show notes for more information. 
Listeners, I hope that today you've learned a little more about the education programs at the Nature Reserve and that we've helped you understand what we're learning about the difficulties people face when trying to connect with the natural world. I also hope we've inspired you not only to spend time in nature yourself wherever you are, but also to uplift and support these community groups such as the Story Stitchers and all the other groups Jesse and I talked about today. They're doing great work with boots on the ground to make the natural world a more comfortable place and reinforce the idea that nature is truly for all of us. Once again, for more information and links to all the resources we discussed today, be sure and check out the show notes. Let us know what you think and share us with everyone you know. We can't wait to bring you more next time. But until then, instead of our usual theme, here are the St. Louis Story Stitchers once again taking us out this month with some prairie therapy. Take care of yourselves, everybody. The sun is shining bright with the pants and the trees, the buzz and the bees, and I'm not